Coming up are the Astros, and in particular the Dodgers, in a world of trouble as they look to punch their tickets in a highly anticipated World Series rematch. NFL Week 6 concluded with a questionable play call as the Bills limp home from a tough loss in Tennessee, but John Gruden's resignation from the Raiders was all the talk in the Shield over the past week. The NBA season tips off tonight as I'll get into all the juicy storylines and preview what will be the 75th anniversary of the association, all the latest in college football, the NHL, and even a peek as to who is ranked number one in college basketball. Passionate and unapologetic sports talk unlike any other just around the corner, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. First off, I want to say thank you for waiting an extra day as I'll get into the past week or so in the life of J. Reels. But more importantly, all that's going on in the sports world through the lens of yours truly as this is the J Reels Podcast. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 220 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Tuesday, October the 19th in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows. The association tips off its 75th season with lots of anticipation despite the potential of a showdown 
that most people may or may not want to see. That would be an NBA final between the Lakers and Nets. I'll get into the top storylines, the 75th anniversary team, over-under predictions, and preview what to possibly expect as the curtain raises in Milwaukee and Los Angeles, respectively, this evening. Week 6 in the NFL wrapped up last night with a bit of a head-scratcher as the Bills had their sights set on a win instead of a tie and end up losing in Nashville to the Titans. I'll recap another wild and crazy weekend with my winners and losers of the week and also throw in my two cents. Granted, it's been eight days. Of course, right after I posted the podcast last week, the reports came out that John Gruden had resigned as head coach of the Raiders. But you don't have to throw in my two cents. I won't spend a lot of time on that. But you'll get my take on that later on, as well as the number two team in the nation this past weekend in Iowa. They were the latest team to slip up and bruise their chances of making it to the college football playoff. But the top stories in college football are a former championship coach on his way out, his replacement fighting off rumors of making his way there, and the inevitable unfolded as a university cuts bait with a coach who was jettisoned for not taking the vaccine. I'll have that as well as college basketball is on the horizon, people. That's right. I'll share who is the preseason favorite and the top teams in the country just to put that on your radar as that sport will creep into our consciousness in the not-too-distant future. I've got all that for you, including my hero and zero of the week. As I mentioned toward the end of the podcast last week, and even posted on social media yesterday that I was not going to release my usual weekly Monday podcast to start off your week, it was because that I was en route from Aruba yesterday morning, or really afternoon, to New York as I was in the Southern Caribbean on my honeymoon this past week. So if you listened to last week's podcast, my voice wasn't 100% from screaming and having to raise my voice throughout the evening two Saturdays ago as your boy walked down the aisle, got married to my longtime girlfriend, which was a magical and epic evening to say the least. But then exactly one week ago as I speak into this microphone, I was on a flight to Aruba, just spent seven days and six nights to just wonderful weather, beautiful scenery, gorgeous beaches, great food, spirits, excursions, sunsets, you name it. It was not just what the doctor ordered after not traveling in two years, but a honeymoon that will live in my memory bank forever, people. I can't say for sure how many people who either attended the wedding, reached out to me by phone, text, on social media, etc., who listened to this podcast. But for those who do, I want to say a gigantic thank you for all the kind words and congratulations. It means a ton to me. I truly appreciate you all and do not Take it for granted. And now that I got the travel book back, who knows, I may have my sights set on a few more trips that'll possibly take place in the months to come, heading into 2022. But rest assured, this podcast will not be stopped. I'm not going anywhere. Of course, I'll keep you apprised on all of my social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. As I continue to grace your speakers or earbuds, delivering my takes on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that being said, you know I'm always on top of what's going on. This past week was a little tricky, obviously, because I couldn't fully immerse myself in, rightfully so, in watching every second of every game. But I've got quite a bit to share as we go through it. And starting us off here on the podcast with what's taking place here so far in the baseball postseason as we're now into the league championship series. But let's face facts. Other than a wild card game in the National League, as I discussed last week, but also a decisive Game 5 where an 107-win team is probably on a beach in Aruba as I speak 
and two walk-offs in Atlanta over the weekend, it has pretty much been a dud of a postseason. Take away those few things, in my estimation, you got nothing. I know every game can't be a thriller or can't be a nail-biter, but when we take a big look at this whole thing, before we get to the League Championship Series, Yankees-Red Sox was over in the third inning. The White Sox did not put up a fight against the Astros. The Rays, do I even need to get into them? Now imagine this for the three Ray fans that are listening to this right now. After shutting out the Red Sox in Game 1, 5 nothing, and then giving up two runs in the top of the first to the Red Sox to where you chased Chris Sale out of the game with five in the bottom of the first, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be just a cakewalk. This is going to be easy street for a team that won 100 games in a regular season, for a team that pretty much did not have much to play for the last month and a half, and for them to just cruise to a rocking chair game one and then get themselves off to a 5-2 first inning lead. From that point on, it completely bottomed out for the Rays. Who would have thought that the Red Sox although with the offensive firepower that they have and the questionable starting pitching as we saw there with Chris Sale, and we know he's coming back from Tommy John surgery, etc. But for them to come back the way they did in the series to not only get the back three games, and I know we talked about it a little bit last week with the Hunter Renfro play out in right field where the ball bounced off of his leg and over the fence into the bullpen, where that pretty much turned the whole series around because if the Rays win that game... Not to say that they're going to win the series, but they'll be up 2-1. They won't have to worry about taking Colin McHugh out in the second inning after 18 pitches. And I'm not trying to make Colin McHugh out to be Pedro Martinez. But for Kevin Cash to make that move, and even though they valiantly came back in game number three, and also game four where they were down 5 nothing in the game, and they made it 5-5, but they ended up losing. Mine, Kike Hernandez, who I believe just got another base hit, And they're not going to play for another six or seven hours. But we know how hot his bat has been here in October. But for the Rays to then all of a sudden be ushered out of the postseason on top of the White Sox and what they didn't do. And they had a big regular season themselves. You had the Brewers who couldn't hit a lick in this postseason. And I don't want to hear about Josh Hader arguably being the best closer in the sport as he spit the bid against Freddie Freeman. And granted, he is Freddie Freeman. I know he's the reigning NL MVP. But for a guy who's been dominant and is left-handed and to be able to try to get that advantage against Freeman, all he did was take him over the wall in a game four to get the Brewers out of here. And I'm sure they're on a golf course somewhere, if not in Aruba, maybe in Hawaii or somewhere in the Caribbean. But the Brewers didn't put up a fight after a pretty much Rather ho-hum regular season for them. So for all the bark in Josh Hader's game, he couldn't get one pitch or at least couldn't get an out or even keep him in the ballpark. So his bite certainly was a joke. And then sadly, one team had to lose between the Dodgers and Giants. And we understand that two of the games were close. You had the other two games were pretty much runaways by the Dodgers. But then you had the game five where it came down to I'm not going to say the ninth inning and that check swing or the call that was made by Gabe Morales, the first base umpire, which, please, what the hell did he see there was an absolute joke. It's a farce, but it's a little bit overrated from this standpoint. As terrible as that call was, 
It's not as if there were runners in scoring position. It's not as if there was a runner on third base. You did have a runner on first, and the count was 0-2. And lastly, Wilma Flores' lifetime against Max Scherzer going into that at-bat was 0-17 for with seven strikeouts. So you could question a little bit with Gabe Kapler where he pinch hit the batter before with Austin Slater as he brought in Lamont Wise Jr. to pinch it there in that spot and he got called out looking. You could have probably saved him for one spot more for Wilma Flores and as we know with the way analytics are and so many people, instead of the eye test, they go to the iPad and Gabe Kapler for as fantastic of a year that he's had and I understand it's tough to knock him at that point. But for him maybe not to pinch it, Wilma Flores there, you have to question that. But Flores goes down swinging, supposedly, and just erroneously by Morales. But as much as people want to harp on that, and it being a bad call, but it's not as if the game was hanging in the balance right there where all it took was maybe a wild pitch or even a bloop, for that matter, that would have had the tying run on third or even the winning run on second. So it becomes a little bit overrated. The game should have not ended that way. Absolutely, 1,000%. But at the same time, it's not as if the game was hanging in the balance where the tying run was 90 feet away and the winning run was parked on second base. So that's something that you have to keep in mind. But now to the LCSs, which I think the Red Sox just hit another grand slam as they've hit three so far in the first three games. They had the back-to-back in the first and second innings there on Saturday. Granted that you had Jose Altuve and his heroics as well as Carlos Correa with his home run. And we know those are winning players no matter how much you may hate the Astros or hate them. Those guys in particular as far as what they do on the baseball field. But ever since that game one, it's been all Red Sox. Grand slams left and right. Big leads. Yesterday you turn on the TV. Schwarber hits a grand slam when the Red Sox were up 2 nothing. Next thing you know, it's 9 nothing again. A carbon copy of what you saw there in game two. Even though the Astros were able to get five runs, but they fell four runs short in game two. Last night, they couldn't make an effort to come back, even with Kyle Tucker hitting a three-run homer. So the Red Sox go away, winning 12-3. Not really much to talk about there. As far as the National League Championship Series is concerned, Dave Roberts, I know it's his call, but we all know it's a collective effort when we look at the end of game two. They had a 4-2 lead after losing game one on a walk-off there by Austin Riley, who hit a home run early in the game, and they went 3-2. Okay, fine. But with the Dodgers up 4-2 in the eighth inning, what in the hell was he thinking of bringing in Julio Urias, who arguably is not only the best pitcher on the team, but also a leading candidate for the Cy Young in the National League, and likely would have been the starter for Game 3 tonight. If not then, maybe tomorrow for Game 4 at the latest. What in the hell is he doing bringing him in that game? 4-2 on the road. And I understand they were looking at it as this was the best pitcher or the best possible scenario for Urias to come in this game so we could go back to LA 1-1. Well, here's the thing. As we all know in sports, no matter if it's the NBA, NHL, or in this particular case with Major League Baseball, it's not a series until somebody loses a home game. And I get that he was trying to go for the, not going to say juggler here, it's a little too strong, but I understand he was going to try to put the brakes on the Braves here to get that split, take them home so they could have the home field advantage and try to see if they could sweep three games against the Brave team that has obviously played very well so far this postseason. 
But by him bringing in Urias, and we know that this is all upstairs, all with the performance team and the analytics and stuff that I've talked about ad nauseum for the last month and a half, it seems. But for Urias to be brought in that spot was a joke because you do not, in under any circumstance, you're the Dodgers. You won 106 games. You're a defending World Series champion. Yes, he may have been the best person to pitch in that spot, but you gotta, you can't mortgage your series future by bringing in a guy that could help you get back in the series game three, which would be tonight played in Los Angeles. And this is on the heels of Max Scherzer, who talked about having a dead arm because remember, he came in to save the game against the Giants there on Thursday night. So you've already stretched him out to the point where his arm's feeling tired. And there's no way that you could look at, unless it's a game seven, where it's winner take all, all hands on deck, totally different story. But for your rise to be in that game was just beyond unconscionable. Couldn't believe it. And as it was, karma got to them. They get the two runs there in the eighth inning. And then Eddie Rosario gets the winner there in the ninth. And now the Braves have a 2-0 series lead as the scene shifts to Chavez Ravine tonight, tomorrow, and Thursday. So now what does this mean here in the grand scheme of things when it comes to both the Astros and Dodgers, two teams that are battle-tested, two teams that have been in World Series over the last four or five years, obviously played against one another, which I know right now, if you're Fox, they are praying on their hands and knees for an Astros-Dodgers World Series. Obviously, what happened there in 2017, especially in Game 5 in Houston, that was the game where Clayton Kershaw had the 4-0 lead and the 7-4 lead, and he couldn't even get out of that to bring his team home. And at that point, would have been a 3-1 series lead for the Dodgers. So with Fox now shaking in their boots because they are hoping that Atlanta, which would be as good as a team as they are, they would be an atrocious, even if it's against Boston or Houston, an atrocious matchup for a World Series because Atlanta, as we all know, they do have a big market, but they're sports teams and it's just a terrible sports city. They do not want to see Atlanta in the World Series no matter who's on the team. And that's without their best player and Ronald Acuna Jr. So picture that. But with the Astros and Dodgers, I wouldn't be surprised if either one of these teams come back in the series. The Astros always seem to find a way. I wouldn't be surprised if, even if they lose tonight, that they would push this series to a Game 7. The Astros, that is. And for the Dodgers, to me, they need to win tonight. Because the Braves, with these two big wins, especially the one on Sunday night, and then also remember this, they had a 3-1 series lead against the Dodgers last year in this same round. You know, deep down inside, they wanted to put away the Dodgers and not only cut the head off, but put the stake in the heart. And I understand it's a little strong, but we're talking about the team, we're not talking about the person. So the Braves are going to do whatever it takes, and I'm sure they've learned from last year. Granted that the scenario was in a neutral site down in... Dallas, there for Globe Life Park, the new stadium for the Texas Rangers. So I'm sure that they smell blood right now, and they know that they could really put some serious damage to the Dodgers by beating them tonight, or just winning 
one of the next three games. Now, granted, they would want to win, if not tonight, tomorrow. They want to be up 3-1 again. But I think that in order for the Dodgers to win this series, they're going to have to win the next three. That's how bruised they are right now. I'm not going to say they're battered or beaten or anything like that. Because again, they do have that pedigree. They've been in this scenario before. I could see them coming back. But I think the Braves, based on last year, they're going to do not only just enough, but I think that as long as they get themselves in a position where they're up 3-1, or if they even have to go back to Atlanta 3-2, they'll be fine. If it's 2-2, obviously it favors the Dodgers, so where they could go back to Atlanta up 3-2, or if the Dodgers take a 3-2 series lead, at that point, then I would worry and wonder the Braves' psyche. But I think right now, the Braves are flying high. I think it's their series to win. And would I be surprised if the Dodgers do push it to a seventh game, unlike my feeling for the Astros? Right now, I'd have to say yes. Now, the Astros have looked awful here, especially these last two games. And their pitching is tattered. Zach Greinke, you can't throw out there. We've seen what they've done so far to Jose Urquidy last night. We've seen what they've done to other pitchers on their staff, even their bullpen. And the Astros right now are gasping for air. This is a huge game for them tonight. They need to win. Actually, the Dodger game is going to be the first game today, Tuesday, as they'll be up at 5.07, and then I believe 8.07, or somewhere around there, will be the Astros and Red Sox. And then tomorrow they'll flip-flop to where the Red Sox will have the afternoon game and then the Dodgers will have the night game. But as I look at this on a whole, to kind of wrap this up, and move on, I think the Astros have a better shot of pushing this series deeper than the Dodgers do at this point. And I understand it's easy for me to say that because the Dodgers are in an 0-2 hole. And for everything I said about the Braves and last year, so on and so forth. But even with the Dodgers at home, I still feel that the Astros, based on what they've been able to do here, and I get it, this could be the year where they may just fall apart. But I could also see them winning one of those wild and crazy, wacky, controversial type of games tonight where they'll even the series and then maybe even go down 3-2 back home to Houston, but they'll push it to a seventh game and then it's all up for grabs. Whereas the Dodgers, as I said, to me they need to win all three. Because even if they win the next two, if the Braves take that game five in LA, they go back home, they'll have their crowd, that's not to say the Dodgers season is going to be over. But I think the Braves will be able to prevail and go on to a World Series. Which is something Fox does not want. Astros-Dodgers, number one shining lights, Fox will do cartwheels. Red Sox-Dodgers, they'll definitely take that because you'll have the whole Mookie Betts storyline against the Red Sox. Verdugo, who was part of that trade, much lesser player, But you're going to have that rematch of 2018 and especially the former MVP of the Red Sox going up against his former team. That in itself will bring a lot of eyeballs to the sets. Braves, Red Sox, uh uh-uh. Braves, Astros, uh uh-uh. That's where we're at here with this postseason. And of course, we'll continue to monitor that as we have a Game 3 and Game 4 on the horizon later on today. One last baseball note. If you heard a groan 
throughout the Bronx and the tri-state area, and certainly not from yours truly, is that the Yankees re-signed Aaron Boone as their manager for the next three years where they'll have a club option in 2025. So think about this. Not only is he going to be your manager in 2022, 2023, and 2024, they have a club option for 2025. And Hal Steinbrenner, although a far cry from his dad, did make a statement to say, we love him, he's been great for us, he's a great man, all the complimentary things, but he did say, we have to be better, period. Here's the problem for me, why I do not like the three years in the club option. You want to give him two years solid? Fine. You want to give him even a one-and-one, which would have been risky because that would have been lame duck status if you, let's say, gave him a year with a club option in 2023. I get it. So guess what? Give him the two years. Give him next year in 2023, but that's it. Why they tacked on another year and then a club option is beyond me. He's been a Yankee manager now for, count him, four years. He's been in the playoffs all four years. He has not gotten to a World Series He did get to a Game 7 in 2017 in the LCS, but that's the deepest he's gone since he's been manager after that rookie season of his. To me, why the game three years is beyond me. I don't get it. I mean, you could love the man. He could be great to your kids. He could be the shill for the whole organization. But for how to come out and say that we must be better, period, you gave him three years to show and prove. What if next year they fall on their face? What if the year after that where Brian Cashman, who has a contract through 2022, and you would think they're going to resign him for, I guess, maybe another couple of years. Maybe that's the plan. Because if Boone's going to be here to the at least to the end of 2024, you could give Cashman that same type of deal where you're going to give him two years and then that club option similar to Aaron Boone. Maybe that's something that they've had the foresight on doing. But if you ask me, I don't like the move. And I get it that who else are you going to hire? Who else are you going to bring in? Understood. You're not going to bring in a Buck Walter. You're not going to bring in an aging Lou Pinella. I don't know where he is on this planet. But we know that the way baseball is in 2021, the Yankees and a lot of other baseball teams are not going to go that route. But you do have to ask yourself, if you're a Yankee fan, you're bringing this guy back for three more years? We're going to have to deal with him being in a dugout? And have to question our bullpen and question some of the moves that he makes. And one more time, it's a collaborative effort. We get it from the top on down. But still, I'm sure the Yankee fan is not ecstatic knowing that he's going to have Aaron Boone as his skipper for the next three years. All right, now I'll pivot to the NFL. And let me just get this out of the way quick, fast, in a hurry. Because it's old news and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the whole deal with John Gruden and him resigning... Not only after the Wall Street Journal publishes a report about the emails that went back and forth when he was a commentator going back to his days of ESPN and Monday Night Football with the GM at the time, Bruce Allen, of the Washington football team. But then the New York Times also came out with another report there on Monday about just the crude and unforgivable remarks that were made by Gruden, whether they were racist, whether they were misogynistic, whether they were anti-gay, go on down the list, to where Gruden had no choice but to say goodbye and quietly walk out of the 
press room as his career overall is going to be kaput. Let's just call it as we see it. But the one thing that bothers me is that with everything that's happened with the Washington football team over the years and all of the sexual misconducts and the alleged, let me start off by saying that, the alleged sexual misconducts that have taken place between former trainers, former coaches, personnel, from the top on down, you mean to tell me that we can't start the investigation or the process and maybe they're still in the process for all I know, but if Gruden's going to go, considering that he had this discussion with the former Washington GM, then what's going to happen here with Daniel Snyder and that organization, considering that they've had an overhaul and they've done the right things over the last couple of years, but maybe it's time to push Daniel Snyder out the door, and I understand you can't force an owner, but guess what? We saw it happen in the NBA with Donald Sterling. Why can't it happen here in the NFL with Daniel Snyder? And not that I have an axe to grind with him. We all know that he's a terrible owner. So I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But for that organization, as proud as it's been, going back to the days of the Hogs, even before that, Sonny Jurgensen, Billy Kilmer, go on down the list. But for them to get a pass here, and for that investigation to not be ratcheted up at this point, to at least start the groundswell to get this guy out of here, Come on. Coach is one thing, and we understand that that was a layup. But let me see the NFL get behind the ousting, or at least to get the ball rolling to see what's going to happen to the fate of Daniel Snyder. To where he's going to have to end up selling this team, or they're just going to get him out, and the NFL could own it until they get an investor and a buyer and an owner there, and then we could get rid of that guy. And that's all I'll say about that. Now let me get to my winners and losers of the week. My winners, I have to give it up, the Baltimore Ravens. Here's a team that had a comeback last week, Monday night against the Colts, where they were down 25-9. Now, the Colts were awful defensively, but give it up. Lamar Jackson, who's playing back to his MVP form of two years ago, and their defense made a few stops on the Colts, and winning overtime, 31-25. So to piggyback that from... That Monday night miracle to what took place Sunday in their building against the Los Angeles Chargers. And listen, the Chargers were due to lose. The Chargers were due to have a bad game. They had to come east. I understand people could see, oh, they should be your number one loser. But hey, the Chargers were bound to have a game like this considering how great of a start they've gotten off to their season. But nobody expected the Ravens to come out the way they did. They just cleaned them up and down the field there on Sunday. And I have to give it up. As much as I cannot stand that team, they definitely showed out and they look like they're going to be formidable in an AFC where it's looking pretty top-heavy and that's not even including the Kansas City Chiefs or even the Buffalo Bills for that matter. I'm going to get to them in a minute. So they're my number one winner of the week. Also, let's give it up, the Jacksonville Jaguars. They finally get off the schneid, although they had to do it overseas in London. But Trevor Lawrence had a very good game. Urban Meyer, with all the controversy and everything surrounding him the past couple of weeks, he gets his first victory. He could actually breathe a gigantic sigh of relief as Jacksonville gets their first win, winning 23-20 over the Dolphins. So I'll give it up for them. They are my winners of the week. And my losers of the week, I have to start off with the Cleveland Browns. And I get it. People are going to say, Jay Reels, it's going to be easy for you because you hate the Browns as much as you hate the Ravens. Well, I just bigged up the Ravens here, so you know what? 
Now I'm going to flip that and attack the Browns here because for them to put up a stinker at home, and we understand that Baker Mayfield has a separated shoulder that he's dealing with, that he's, he wore a sling in the post-game press conference there after a 37-14 thrashing to the Arizona Cardinals. And we get it, Arizona 6-0, and they're a top team in the league, understood, but for them to no-show and not have Nick Chubb because of a calf, and it looks like they're going to be without Kareem Hunt, who also injured his calf, and the Odell Beckham Jr., although he had a few catches in the game, but for whatever the reason, the Mayfield-Beckham Jr. connection has been off-kilter. Not a lot of chemistry between those two players, and the Browns, who a lot of people thought they could have a big season, maybe even go deep into the AFC playoffs, and granted, it's only six games, not going to get crazy, but for them to start off the way they have it, 3-3, three and three, and they beat up bad teams this year. They have not beaten a good team this year. It has to make you question whether or not they're going to have a big season at all. But they are my first loser of the week. And my second loser, I have to say the Chicago Bears. Only because they were 3-2, and two, a game behind the Packers in the NFC North. In their building come the Aaron Rodgers-led Packer team. And what did they do? They didn't show up. I know Justin Fields, he's going through the motions here, but they were non-competitive after winning in Las Vegas the week before to a Raider team that I'm sure their psyche was out of sorts, but for them to put up that stinker at home and for Aaron Rodgers to go to their fans to say, I own you, that is terrible. So Chicago, a lot of people thought that, hey, this could be a statement game, and it would have been. They would have been my number one winner if they would have beaten the Packers there in their own building. Not the case. So the Bears, they get my second loser of the week. And when we look at the games this past week, there's not a lot to really get into. Tampa was in control against the Eagles on a Thursday night game, even though the Eagles came back. And it's interesting because when we look at analytics and football, do I have to even get into that right now? But at 28-14, when the Eagles scored that touchdown and they went for two and made it, to make it 28-22. You've seen a lot of that here over the last couple of years where we never saw that since the inception of the two-point conversion dating back to 1994. So now you're having teams that, let's say as you come back in the game and you're down two touchdowns to where they want to go for two because if you don't make it, you're still down within one score that if you get a touchdown, you could convert on a two-point conversion and then fine. But the reason why I don't like that is because... To get back-to-back two-point conversions, although it's only two yards, and we think, geez, two yards, you could probably get that in your sleep. We understand those are probably the hardest two yards to get when you're trying to convert a two-point play. And for the Eagles, it did work out, and it did put themselves in a position where it was going to set them up to win, but they fall short, and they lose 28-22 to Tampa. Now, some of these other games, I really need to get into Indianapolis beating Houston 31-3. Do I even need to get into the Rams beating the Giants 38-11 where they scored 28 points in the second quarter with two touchdowns by Cooper Cup and four touchdowns by a one Matthew Stafford? Do I need to spend my time on Kansas City beating Washington 31-13? Although Washington did have a 13-10 lead but failed to score another point and it looks like the Taylor Heineke shine is starting to fade away from that rose. So that's something you got to keep in consideration. I know Vegas, give it up for them. With everything that transpired this past week, they did win in Denver. Derek Carr had a big game. Josh Jacobs was back in the lineup. 
Okay, but still, Denver is now starting to fall apart after their 3-0 start. And the Raiders at least save some face on the road against a division opponent. Am I going to go nuts over Cincinnati beating Detroit? I believe Detroit's what the last team that is winless in the National Football League. The Bengals, even after a tough loss the week before against the Green Bay Packers, still playing well, still beating the teams that they should beat along the way to a very successful, and even for them, I don't want to say rebuilding year, but a year that they know after last year and losing Burrow halfway through the season, this is one that they have their sights set on a possible shot at the division, and I'm going to talk about that in a few moments when we talk about the upcoming Week 7 slate. You have the Dallas New England game, which was a fascinating game as it all unfolded, and Cowboys had many opportunities in the first half where they turned the ball over deep in the red zone with an interception. They also got stopped on a fourth and one early on in that uh, first quarter. They also had an opportunity where it looked like, although under review, and it wasn't reviewed by the way, but under replay where Dak Prescott, it was undetermined whether or not he crossed the plane of the goal line, which would have made it 17-10, but he didn't. And then on fourth down, he went over the top where he fumbled the ball and the ball was turned over on downs at that point. And even with all the craziness, the back and forth, the end there where the big pass play, Mac Jones, I don't know what the hell happened there where Kendrick Bourne, the play was, the secondary just happened to overlook and went in for a touchdown to make it 29-26 after Mac Jones threw a pick six to Trayvon Diggs, who looks like the front runner for the defensive player of the year. And with everything going down to the wire, Field goal by Zerline, the overtime, the pass to C.D. Lamb, who had an enormous game as the Cowboys leave Foxborough with a 35-29 victory, and the Cowboys are looking as strong as an offensive team in the league as we've seen. And they're going to be a tough out. Give it up for New England. They play tooth and nail, scratched and clawed, but fell short. Then you had the game last night. With Buffalo and Tennessee, I caught parts of it because, again, I was coming back from my honeymoon, so I was only able to catch some of the fourth quarter, and including that final drive, or a couple of drives, Derrick Henry gets a touchdown at 31-27 to make it 34-31, and as the Bills were going down the field, I thought to myself, I said, are they going to go for the touchdown here, or are they going to settle for a field goal? And I understand, 2021, analytics, all that, that plays into it. Teams are going to go for the win, and rightfully so. You should go for a win, that's fine. Where in years past, whenever you're a road team, no matter how good or how bad, you always played for a tie on the road. You want to get those points. And as it was, no matter how much the Bills were moving the chains, they felt that they were going to go for the win and put themselves in a position where not only do they, to me, even after six weeks have the division wrapped up in the AFC East, But to go for a win and not have to worry about tiebreakers, maybe with Tennessee down the road, they figured, the heck with it, let's do it with fourth and inches. And even Josh Allen for all 6'5", and the big body that he is, he couldn't push forward to get those couple of inches, to get a first down, to make it first and goal. So the game ends at 34-31. It is questionable. To me, I would have kicked a field goal. I understand it's about going for the win. I understand that why play for a tie. But you're a road team. You've marched down the field. It's a thing where even if you would have had first and goal there, 
there's still no guarantees. They probably would have settled at first down or after a couple of downs if they weren't able to convert in the end zone. They would have settled for a field goal there. But to me, that's the point. If you're fourth and goal, and or if you're fourth and one at the, I forgot where they were, down near the 10-yard line, or even inside the 10, because they may have been at that time, it was fourth and goal. Why not just kick the field goal there? Just go ahead and tie the game, maybe win a coin toss, or if not, ask your defense to make a stop, and then go ahead and try to win the game that way. If you're at home, I can understand. You have the crowd behind you. You have momentum, etc. Here, they did have momentum, and they were moving the chains, like I said, but you never, ever want to just have to think, unless you're, unless you're at the goal line, and maybe you want to try to make a play where you know you're going to hit pay dirt, but because you're at the 8 or 9 yard line, to me, kick the field goal, get the tie at that point, and then go in overtime, and take your chances there. And then the Sunday night game, Seattle and Pittsburgh, it was ho-hum. I know without Russell Wilson, it was going to be anything close to what the schedule was going to make it look like, Going into this game where you had two teams that were 2-3 and and pretty much were, I'm not going to say this was a season-defining type of game for either one of these franchises, but when you look at the division that they play in, it could go a long way for either one of these teams that would have lost because you have the Cardinals and the Rams well ahead of the Seahawks and you certainly have the Bengals and Ravens well ahead of the Steelers, but for the Steelers, they were able to prevail. Thank you, TJ Watt, as he got the big sack there in the overtime, and not only that, but also got the sack and forced fumble to where they kicked the field goal to win 23-20. Najee Harris had some good yards on the ground, some tough yards. Roethlisberger had made a few plays. Looks a little better. Offensive line was a little bit better. If you're Seattle... Give it up for Geno Smith. He did just about all as he could, but he should have been able to secure the ball there as they had a lot of momentum in the second half. But the Steelers were able to prevail, try to keep pace as they're now tied with the Cleveland Browns there. And they have a very interesting matchup in two weeks where the Steelers have a bye this coming week, but they played the Browns for the first time since that wildcard game last year. And we'll talk about more of that next week. But now it looks like Seattle's going to be out to sea here unless the Rams or the Arizona Cardinals come back to the pack. And as it is, the Rams went up to Seattle, so they already have pretty much a three-and-a-half game lead over the Seahawks when it comes to the NFC West. But that's what you have here in a week number six, which again, you had a few overtime games. I know Minnesota and Carolina, talk about that real quick. Their offense is very good, the Vikings I think they could go up against any offense considering if Kirk Cousins plays the way he's been playing because we all know Kirk Cousins could pull off that stinker especially in a big money moment but they won a game in Carolina Carolina who started off 3-0 have fallen flattened on their face and the Vikings have gotten themselves back to 500 so give it up for them but other than that you don't really have a lot of games that you can really chew the fat on so to speak and when we look at week seven schedule, your buy teams, you have six teams that are on buys and a lot of them are very good teams in the league. So when we take a look at that, your buy teams this week are Buffalo, Dallas, the Chargers, Minnesota, Pittsburgh, and Jacksonville. 
So you have three good teams that are out. The other two teams, middling, Minnesota and Pittsburgh, and then Jacksonville, obviously nobody cares about. And your schedule this week, it is deplorable. Your Thursday night game is Denver or Cleveland. Your Sunday marquee game, if I look at it from a whole, the marquee game is Cincinnati at Baltimore. And this, like I said a couple of weeks ago with Cincinnati and Green Bay, how that was going to be a big game. Now, this is even a bigger game for Cincinnati because if they hang tight with the Ravens, and as we've seen over the years, almost Madden-like, they've just run roughshod over the Bengals here with Lamar Jackson running circles around that Bengal defense. To me, that's the marquee game of the day. Because when we look at the 425 games, which are going to be on CBS, Chicago at Tampa? I don't think so. Detroit at LA. So Jared Goff comes back to go up against his old team, which you know he's going to be chomping at the bit for. But the Lions, as we know, have not won a game. And now, all of a sudden, Sean McVay, the Wonderboy coach, said that he should have handled Goff's exit a lot better, in which he didn't even give him a phone call to say goodbye or even to thank him for what he did. I mean, the guy did take him to a Super Bowl. So as bad as that optic was for McVay, he had a little bit of uh, mea culpa toward his former quarterback. So if anybody wants to rally around that storyline as a game to watch on Saturday, hey, be my guest, but I won't. Your Sunday night game is Indianapolis at San Francisco? Woo! I'm sure they could try to flex out of that if they could, but obviously they can't. And your Monday night game is New Orleans at Seattle. So to me, that game at 1 o'clock Cincinnati-Baltimore is the highlight game of the day. And let me see how the Bengals... This is a big game for the Bengals. I don't care how you slice it, how you cut it. If they mean business this year, even if they lose a 27-24 game or let it be a one-score game in the fourth quarter. If at the ticker, I see 10-0 Ravens in the first quarter and at halftime, I see 21 or 24-3 Ravens and then they go on to win... 34, 17, uh-uh. I don't want to hear it. Be in the game in the fourth quarter by one score, then we'll talk. Because if the Bengals want to be a contender this year instead of a pretender, then do as I say and don't be bungle-like, if you know what I mean. And one last thing. I watched a little bit of that Dallas-New England game. And I was, uh, I was talking about honeymoons at the beginning of this podcast. To me, and I don't know how anybody else feels, but the honeymoon between Tony Romo being the color commentator of the gods, that to me is right out the window. I'm tired of his rah-rah, here we go, acting like a fan in the booth. And I haven't seen, nor have I even discussed about the Manning brothers doing their ESPN2 Monday night broadcasts. But to me, Tony Romo is more of a guy that should be on Spike TV, which is now Paramount, I believe. But Spike TV doing a separate broadcast where he could be all with his pomp and circumstance and it's all right, let's go and cheering on and acting like a fan. To me, that's tired and it's played out. And the whole predicting of the plays where I know it was cute early on where everybody thought, oh my God, look at him as he's circling on the telestrator. Watch the tight end do this or watch the safety creep up and do that and predict the play. I was never really impressed by that, people. I've watched football a thousand years 
And I don't need to have some shtick or gimmick or a former player tell me like, oh, this is what's going to happen in this play. Because sometimes, I mean, listen, I watch football. I can tell that if it's going to be third and one and Lamar Jackson's going to be in an RPO, if he's going to run the ball left or run the ball right or try to go up the gut, yeah, I can pretty much try to predict that myself. Let the play unfold, let it happen, that's it. So for Tony Romo and for all of that he brings to the telecast with Jim Nance, you can spare me that. I'd rather mute the audio because to me, not only could I care less, but that doesn't tickle my fancy, to use a corny statement. Uh, Well, anyway, let me just move on from that. It just comes across contrived and it's just over the top. So that's how I'm going to end my football segment, people, not the way to go out. But I'll segue that into the college football because you had Iowa, number two, and it seems like week after week, you got to wonder with Cincinnati this week, and I believe they play Navy on the road because these number two teams seem to get knocked off left and right. Now, granted, the week before was Alabama. They were number one. Georgia moved up to number one. But now with having Iowa just getting beaten at home by Purdue to crush their playoff hopes, and we have to wait and see how this all plays out. And, of course, we got to talk about the Big Ten Championship, and that's for down the road, and that's going to be a battle royale, and I'll talk about that in a minute with the Big Ten, especially if you're Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan State, and Michigan. But for the Hawkeyes to just completely lay a gigantic deuce at midfield, it just goes to show you the state of college football this year, as unpredictable as it's been, other than Georgia to to date. Because who knows, Georgia may get picked off here with the way college football has gone. But now the Boilermakers have crept up into the top 25. I believe they're right at the bottom at the 25th spot in the nation. But for their quarterback, Aiden O'Connell, throwing for 375 yards, two touchdowns. And those two touchdowns were recipient of David Bell, who had 240 receiving yards as they just ran all up and down the field against that Iowa defense. And Iowa, you got to question whether or not they're going to be representing of these top four spots in college football. But again, with still a lot of football to be played, and let's see what the Big Ten Championship and how that shakes down in the next month or so. But the big story in college football, believe it or not, has to do off the field and with a lot of these head coaches. Starting off with Ed Orgeron, who the LSU coach just what, 21 months ago, won a national title. And it seemed from that night on, with all the reports about Odell Beckham Jr. and how the players were taking money from former alumni and how that all was just sorted and did not put a good light on a championship team that was led by Joe Burrow, as we all know there, down in the Sugar Bowl. It seemed that from that point on, they went from the penthouse to the basement. And then the crazy thing is, is that when you look at that championship, that might as well seem like 45 years ago. So talk about irony and conversely having the, one of the great college football seasons going undefeated and the way they beat Alabama that year and the way they just blitzed through the college football playoff and Joe Burrow and their high flying offense and all the points and everything. You might as well thought that was 1975. But it wasn't even two full years that gone by since that national title. And then now with Orgeron 
going to exit stage right at the end of the year. Not only just on that, but based on poor decisions as far as assistance on his team. You also had the scenario with a lot of the social justice stuff that Orgeron put his foot in his mouth. And ever since that championship, it has just been not just downhill. It has been a precipitous fall off a cliff for that administration, for that school. So that was story number one. Number two, speaking of LSU, where you had Jimbo Fisher, the coach of Texas A&M, there were a lot of reports that he was ready to jump ship and go to LSU at the end of this year. But he shut that down in a press conference where he said that he plans on fulfilling his contract, loves the AD, the administration, what they're building. They feel like they're building something great. He has roots and family in Texas that there's no way he's going to leave. He loves everything about the place. And he said that with a lot of fervor and a lot of passion in his voice. So it wasn't as if he kind of mumbled or just said that, hey, I like being here. Now, of course, what is he going to say? Obviously, he's not going to say, oh, yes, that's my dream job. I want to go there. I'm hoping just to play it out here and maybe be the coach of the LSU Tigers. Of course, he's not going to say that. But let's hope with these college football coaches, you never know. I mean, we've seen it time after time after time how they may say, I love it here. I don't want to go anywhere. And then they lose a bowl game. The rest of their season bottoms up. Now, granted, they just beat Alabama a couple weeks ago, but still, they'll go to a bowl game. They may lose to whomever they play. And then just weeks later, Jimbo Fisher, press conference for LSU as the next coach. So we'll keep an eye on that. And then lastly, you had the Washington State coach, Nick Rolovic, who he had been over the last several weeks, whether it's been dodging the point of getting the vaccine, whether it's putting in an exemption for his religious beliefs on not getting the vaccine. Well, it all came to a boil yesterday where the deadline came and went and so did he and four assistants out the door as the, I believe the offensive coordinator who's now the interim head coach for Washington State. But this has been a tug of war back and forth for about eight or nine weeks going back to before the start of the college football season to where now Rolovic is on the outs. And for Rolovic to kind of string along his decision and him waffling back and forth whether or not he's going to get the vaccine or he said he was going to get it and whatever it was. And they gave him ample time. They provided all the information. They made sure that, hey, we want to make sure that here's your deadline, but you have all this time to do so. Don't pull our chain. Pretty much what Rolovic did was do that, or Rolovic. And on top of that, I get it that he tried to milk this for all of what it was worth knowing that as a state employee, it's a mandate for anybody in Washington to get a vaccine. And he was the highest paid state employee, $3 million a year. So you know he was just trying to do whatever it took for him to string this out to the 11th hour. And sure enough, he did so and he lost his job. And obviously he's not going to get any type of compensation or any type of buyout scenario. Because they gave him enough time. They made sure that they had to come a point where they were either going to cut bait 
and he had to sink or swim. So guess what? He sunk to the bottom of the ocean and he moves on. What can you say, people? I know that it's such a touchy subject and I'm going to talk about that in a minute with Kyrie as we get to the NBA in a minute, but you know, it's not as if they told him and then the next day they threw him out to the wolves. They gave him enough time. If he knew that he wasn't going to get it, he should have been forthright. And I understand he's making $3 million a year, so he's not going to give up that money that's coming into him. Come on. This is a case where Rolovich loses big time. And who knows if he gets another job. So that's the college football there. And as we go through it quickly, Georgia's still your number one. Cincinnati moves up to two. And again, watch out with that Navy game. Would you be surprised if Navy pulls off an upset? I think not. Oklahoma, now Bama moves up to number four, which, uh, that shudders for the Bama haters like myself. Ohio State, followed by Penn State, Oklahoma State, Michigan State, Oregon, and then Iowa is number 11. Now, here's where it's going to get fascinating for the college football season, not this weekend, the following weekend. Because every other week from that point on to Thanksgiving, you're going to have a matchup where these teams are going to knock each other out. Starting off with Ohio State, where they'll have Penn State the week after next, the day before Halloween. Two weeks after that, they have Michigan State, and then they play at Michigan Thanksgiving weekend. That's Saturday. Michigan, on the other hand, in two weeks, has at Michigan State, then at Penn State before they face Ohio State. And then Penn State has Ohio State. They go to Ohio State, followed by Michigan, and then Michigan State. And then Michigan State, again, they have their own scenario where they're at Penn State, at Ohio State, and then they host Michigan. I tell you, that Big Ten, now Iowa may be that last team standing in the Big Ten championship, but you can't even predict whether it's going to be Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan State, or Michigan. This is going to be a free-for-all. And the college football season, not this weekend, because the college football docket is, let's say it's rather slim right about now as we take a look at that. What we're going to really harp on starting the following week is everything in the Big Ten. And then, of course, you're going to have your matchups there. Later on, you're going to have Auburn, Alabama, which is one to watch out for. And that's not going to be till Thanksgiving anyway. But college football this week is dry. I mean, it is barren. Are you going to get crazy about Oregon, UCLA? Eh, not crazy. I mean, it's a road game. UCLA could win, but you're not going to be glued to the sets or wonder, hey, what's Oregon going to do here against the Bruins? Alabama has Tennessee coming into their building. The night game is Ohio State and Indiana. Notre Dame, USC, which obviously everybody always looks forward to, whether the game is at South Bend or in Southern California. Again, you don't have a week. LSU's at Ole Miss. Who knows if LSU's going to rally the troops here against Ole Miss. That remains to be seen. So once we get past this week, then we'll certainly sink our teeth into a college football season and see what will transpire, especially with the Big Ten, as we creep closer to the month of November. All right, now let's turn our attention to the association, otherwise known as the NBA as tonight, the banner will not only raise on a season, but 
in the rafters at the Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee as the Bucks will raise their championship banner to the rafters and the NBA season, the 75th anniversary of this league will begin. Following that will be the Golden State Warriors going up against the Los Angeles Lakers in the nightcap. And there are storylines abound for this NBA season. And it's funny because if you go back to my NFL preview, I didn't really look at this upcoming NFL season with a ton of different storylines. I know people, oh, Tampa, they're going to repeat. And uh, Please, to me, the NFL came into the season so anticlimactic, even with the 17-game season, although a lot of those storylines are top-heavy. But now you have a developing story that's taking place in Philadelphia where the Sixers have suspended Ben Simmons just moments ago just for the season opener. Now, I don't know how long it's going to be. Maybe it's just a game. Maybe it's a couple of games. Who knows? But there was a spat in practice where Simmons, I guess, started acting up against one of his teammates to where it was conduct detrimental to the team. The coach, Doc Rivers, kicked him out of practice and sent him home to where he's now not going to play in their first game, which I believe is tomorrow night. I got to pull up the schedule. But everything we've talked about this offseason and throughout the last few weeks with Ben Simmons and having to trade them because the fans aren't going to trust him based on his play, especially in that final game against the Hawks in that game seven of the second round. And then the mending of fences between the clutch sports group with Rich Paul, his agent, and having to bring their tails between their legs to the Sixers to keep them on the team. And then now you have this incident. This Sixer team is going to be a mess. And I get that they've said all the right things, especially Joel Embiid, that he wanted Simmons back. He wanted them on the team. We're much better with him here than if he went elsewhere. Yada, yada, yada. All the towing the company line stuff. But now they got to get him out of there. And the sad part is that they're going to have to make a trade where they're not going to get anything close to the value of what he is, even with that contract. And they owe him $140 million for the remainder of of his four years that's on that contract. But boy, you talk about starting off your season as poor as you possibly can, that is Philadelphia. So that's one storyline that we're already going to look at to see whether or not Simmons is going to be part of this team in the very near future or not, and how big of a season that they're going to have because we all talked about trusting the process and all the draft picks and everything that has transpired here the last seven, eight years or let's say five, six years, and now here it is. It's coming to a head, and it looks like it's ready to implode. But to me, the first storyline is whether or not the collision course between the Lakers and Nets will take place sometime in mid to late June for a championship. I'm going to say right now, off the bat, it is not. And my NBA prediction, as far as the final goals, you'll get later on. But to me, there's just so much baggage. And here's a 1A for you with Kyrie Irving and the Nets as they pretty much sent them home. And they did the right thing because how can you have Kyrie be on your team to play road games where he's not going to play in 41 home games, at least as of right now. 41 home games in Brooklyn. The two games in the Garden against the Knicks. And then the one game in San Francisco against the Golden State Warriors, so that's 44 games to where he could only participate in 38, albeit on the road. You can't have him flying in and out and not being a part of the team or being part of the team half the time and the other half not being part of the team, so they did the right thing. Now, what does this mean overall? 
Is there a possibility that there could be a trade upcoming? Which I can't see that happening. And don't say Ben Simmons, people. If the Nets and Sixers were to make that type of trade, that would be, the NBA would have to pull the plug on that. There's no way Adam Silver could even think remotely, despite the contracts matching up, they can't do it. Uh Uh-uh. Cannot. So that's number one. And I'm not saying that Kyrie's getting traded, but I'm sure you're going to hear reports bubbling about a potential Kyrie trade because I guess with the collective bargaining agreement, they have to pay him whatever his beliefs. As we all know, Kyrie, and rightfully so, he has a right to not get vaccinated. And I'm not saying that. But at the same time, he's not going to play. And I would think in the process, he's not going to get paid or he's going to get fined or he's going to get docked, whatever it is. So you're going to have that story all year long with the net team and how that's going to transpire, whether the Nets get out of the gate flying without Kyrie, whether Harden stays healthy, obviously the same for KD. That's going to be a soap opera from start to finish. Same for the Lakers, because to me, that championship boils on the two legs of Anthony Davis. And remember, the Lakers are the expendables, as I called them many weeks ago, after the action movie with Sylvester Stallone, Dolph Lundgren, Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, did I even say Schwarzenegger? All the big action heroes of the 80s and 90s, Jason Statham. Those two teams, they're going to be a soap opera unto themselves, but to me, it all depends on the health of Anthony Davis, because if he's not healthy, they're not winning a championship. Russell Westbrook isn't going to save them, Carmelo Anthony isn't going to save them, Dwight Howard isn't going to save them, Malik Monk isn't going to save them, Trevor Ariza isn't going to save them. Yes, we understand one man does not make a team, but if that guy, number three in the middle, who plays center, if he's not there, they're not winning. And that's all there is to it. Another storyline that people are going to look at here are the teams that had successful years last year. Whether they're the Utah Jazz, the Phoenix Suns. You know, I'll even throw in the Hawks for their postseason performance, making it to a conference final. I'm not going to throw in Milwaukee. They won the title. If they don't win it this year, so be it. But those teams that are kind of in the middle, you want to throw in the Miami Heat? You want to throw in the Celtics, even though they don't belong there? The Denver Nuggets teams that they got swept by the Phoenix Suns. Those teams, will they be able to make an impact on the upper echelon teams in each of their respective conferences? Because you know it's going to be the Lakers. The Nuggets, although they had a great year, but they're not going to get Jamal Murray, not until several months into the season. Talked about Phoenix, Utah. Can they have that type of season where they could replicate what they did last year? Are those teams going to make an imprint in the league this year? Because we know it's top-heavy with the obvious teams. But could those other teams take a step up? Could they even make it to a final? Now the Hawks, if they played Brooklyn... Now, granted, they beat Philadelphia, and Philadelphia knows a mess in that second round. But can those teams not only take a step up, but also challenge the likes of the behemoths of the sport? Lakers, Clippers, even though without Kawhi, and I don't even know what his status is. I don't think he's going to be ready to start the season. Brooklyn, I'll throw in Philly for now, Milwaukee, etc. And what about the young teams? And the only reason why I bring up the young teams because this is going to be the future of the league. Whether it is the New Orleans Pelicans under a new coach of Willie Green. Whether it is John Morant 
Jaron Jackson and company down in Memphis. Whether a Chicago Bull team that has been retooled and even reloaded to a certain extent, bringing in Lonzo Ball and DeMar DeRozan, while they already had Zach Levine and even Nikola Vucevic, which they have a very good team. Can they make some hay with the likes of those teams that I mentioned? Even the Knicks, you want to throw them in there with Kemba now, supposedly 100% healthy to go with Julius Randle? We'll wait and see on them. So it's not only just the big teams, the top-heavy teams. It's those teams that had success, whether in the regular season and even in the postseason, can now take a leap up. And the teams that were either on the fringe or made it to the postseason but didn't really take a leg or really take another step, let's see how they perform. Because the bottom is the bottom. So if you're Sacramento, if you're Minnesota... I know the Wizards technically made the playoffs last year, and they did because they played the Sixers in the first round, but you know Orlando, you don't expect them to be good. So those teams you're going to leave alone. It's just a matter of those teams, even Dallas. There's another team that's in the middle that could maybe take a step with Luka now, probably your front runner being the MVP this year. Can't forget the Mavs. And I'm going to say this before I get to my over-unders and prediction. With the 75th All Anniversary team, They're going to announce 25 players tonight on TNT, 25 tomorrow on ESPN, and I believe 25 on TNT prior to the, during the pregame shows before the actual games that will take place tonight, tomorrow, and Thursday. I cannot wait to see what this list is going to be. If you remember, for those who are old enough, for the 50th anniversary team, there weren't that many erroneous mistakes. There was one in particular in the 50th old anniversary team, and they put Shaquille O'Neal. Now, Shaq was in the league five years when the 50th anniversary team came out. And a lot of people thought it was premature to put Shaq there no matter how dominant he was. And mind you, he didn't even win an MVP. And that 96-97 season was his first year in LA. So all of that was encompassed by his four-year career in Orlando. So they put Shaq there and they left Dominique off, which was a joke. So now I'm going to wait to see who they're going to put in and... With the way they're going to have it aligned, they're going to have it 1 through 75 based on what I read. And we know there's going to be, please, there's going to be arguments over this from here to kingdom come. And I understand that's the fun part to debate about it, but it's also going to be ugly. Because I remember, for example, I remember when they had that list ESPN, I believe they did their top 75, and they had James Harden one spot over John Havlicek. Which I don't care about analytics, I don't care about percentage Usage rates, 48 minutes. I don't want to hear any of that garbage. If you ask an NBA fan who watched John Havlicek play, and listen, I did not watch him play. In fact, I went to his last game at Madison Square Garden as a member of the Celtics back in 1978. So I'm not going to sit here on a high horse as a Celtic fan to say I watched John Havlicek play. But all you got to do is just match the resumes. And we understand that James Harden, his story and his NBA playoff life is not over. Or his NBA life, excuse me. His NBA life isn't over. But here's all you need to know between Harden and Havlicek. Yes, I understand that Harden was an MVP, so was John Havlicek. And I believe he has more first all-team NBAs than Havlicek. I believe Harden has five, or he may have four, which would tie Havlicek in that regard. We could put the titles aside, because that in itself... Havlicek won eight 
championships. Here's the thing that just blows Harden away. Not only was he all-time leading scorer in Celtic history, played for one team. Okay, put that aside, fine. But Havlicek was NBA all-defense, first team eight times. How many does James Harden have? I'm waiting. Still waiting. And this guy was a sixth man for most of his career. And he was, of course, ranked one of the 50 players of all time. So if the NBA is going to rank these players and we're going to see egregious ones like Chris Paul over John Havlicek or even over Kevin McHale. And I get it that Harden, you could say overall, is probably better than Kevin McHale. But that's Charles Barkley who was the best player he ever faced. So that's why I can't wait to see next week and we'll have fun with that. But that's the 75th anniversary team which will pick that up next week. So let me quickly preview this NBA season. And... It's going to be rather simple. I'm not going to break it down by divisions. I'm just going to go by teams and the expectations. Because really, am I going to sit here and break down what the Toronto Raptors are going to do this year? Or break down what Orlando's going to do? Or the Wizards? We pretty much know the teams that are going to make it to the postseason, or even the Cavaliers for that matter. Granted, they have a good young backcourt, but still. I'm going to base this on the expectations of these teams. And to me, as far as more like surprises and disappointments. I think the one surprise this year, and it may not be much of a surprise, I'm going to say the Bulls are going to have a big year this year. For the personnel and the roster that they've built here this offseason, I've already mentioned the names. Now, are the Bulls going to be a championship contender? No, but I think they could be that team similar to the Hawks to have that type of year where they may be a 4-5 or 6 seed and maybe they'll win a round to go to a next round. Now, will they surprise and beat up the number one seed? Probably not. But I think Chicago could be that team to look out for in the East. Now, when we look at it as a whole, Brooklyn's going to have a big year. But again, they're going to be a soap opera. But just based on their personnel, they don't have much of a bench. But based on their personnel, they should be fine. But with a lot of, a lot of ugliness in between, you would think. Philly, as I mentioned now with this Ben Simmons deal, that's going to be another team that's going to be as the world turns. Milwaukee, you feel like they'll be stable. Will they have a little bit of a hangover? It's possible, but at the same time, you would think they're going to have a big season and Giannis, he may be hungry for a deep postseason run and maybe for another title. Remains to be seen. The Knicks, for everything they did in the regular season, let's see if they could get themselves past the first round this year. The Miami Heat, and bringing in Kyle Lowry, who's won a championship, which could be that missing piece to go along with Jimmy Butler, with Bam Adebayo, uh, and the likes of that Heat team, to bring him in the mix. That's an upgrade, if you ask me, because championship experience and knowing how to win is paramount in this league. As we saw there a couple of years ago in Toronto with Kawhi Leonard in his one year with the Raptors. Indiana could be a sleeper team as they have a good young roster led by DeMontis Sabonis. Also with a guy like Karis LeVert who's back 100% healthy, you would only hope considering the maladies that he went through last year. They also re-upped Malcolm Brogdon for a couple of years. But they're not a team that you would expect to see in a conference final, let alone an NBA final. So we know who the top teams are in the East and who could be a surprise. I think it's going to be more of the Bulls than any other team, and we'll see where they fall throughout the course of the season. 
by chalk. It should be in any way, shape, or form. Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Philly. The Celtics, do I need to spend a couple of minutes on them? I guess as a Celtic fan, I do. It's going to be all on the shoulders of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Bringing in Josh Richardson, okay, maybe he could somehow rejuvenate his career. Dennis Schrader on a one-year contract, he's a guy that has that irrational confidence that nothing's going to stop him or scare him, but again, he does have warts in his game. Al Horford, who is not going to bring much, he's pretty much going to be a bench coach at the most. He may see 12 to 15 minutes throughout the course of a game, but it's going to be all on the two young studs for the rookie coach, Ime Udoka. Can they be good this year? Yeah, I think they'll have their moments. I think they'll be good. Are they going to be anywhere close to the top three teams in the East? I don't think so. That's the way to summon up these Celtics chances for 2021 and 2022. And then out West, the Expendables, you would think if they're healthy, they're going to be the top team. You're also going to look at Denver. You have to throw in Utah and Phoenix at this point because of what they did last year. You have to give them that much. The one team that is the wild card here is Golden State. Now, if they're healthy, especially with Klay Thompson coming back, and if they're anything a semblance of what they were, forget about the championship years, especially with Kevin Durant there, but you want to take that one 2015-2016, or excuse me, 2014-2015 year when they won their first title, where they were just coming into their own, but now that they have separated themselves seven years from that point, six to seven years from that point, and now with Thompson being fully healthy and wondering psychologically where he's at, if he's able to cut, if he's able to move with 100% confidence, they're the wild card. And not to say that they're going to go to a final or they're going to be that team that's going to represent in a Western Conference final, but which team are you going to see? Are you going to see that team that could actually make some hay and maybe get themselves a four seed? I don't know if they're going to challenge the Clippers or Lakers for the division. But something to watch out for? Or are they going to be somewhere wallowing 6 through 8? Or maybe even on the outside looking in as we get deep into a season? I'm not going to look at Portland. To me, Portland's the same team. It's going to be all Damian Lillard. And yes, they're going to have their moments where they're going to look unbeatable and unstoppable. And he's going to be an MVP candidate. But they need more help. They'll win their 42 to 45 games and then maybe they'll steal a game or two in a in an opening round and then they'll just fall by the wayside. So I'm not going to be able to take them seriously. What about New Orleans? What about Memphis? As I said, could this team take a step up? Kind of like what I said with the East with some of those teams, whether it's going to be the Bulls. I'll even say the Knicks for that matter because now they're going to see if they could go to a second round. Indiana. Let's see if those teams out West could do that. I don't think they will. As far as Sacramento, as far as Oklahoma City, as far as Houston, I mean, what's there to discuss? I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, they have a good shot, or hey, you know, they may be a surprise. No, no, no. That's not going to happen. So now as I get to my over-unders, and I'm going to zoom through these real fast because I got a couple of things to touch on before I say goodbye. As you know, over-unders... The number win totals that are out in Vegas, you're going to pick them over or under for each team. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but I'm going to pick three overs, three unders, and I'm going to start with the overs. I already talked about them. The number's 41 and a half. I'm going to pick the Bulls as an over there. 42 and 40, you mean this team that has Lonzo Ball, 
And I understand you got to worry about his health at times. But Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic, bring in DeMar DeRozan, who I understand is on the other side of the mountain. But if Billy Donovan, the coach of this team, could rally these troops to ensure that this team, hey, we can make some hay in this conference. We have enough talent. We may not have enough depth, but we can compete with some of these teams in a night-in, night-out basis. That alone, I think they'll probably get somewhere between 45 to 48 tops, if you ask me. So I'm picking them as an over number one. Number two, I'm going to pick Denver. I know it's a little bit dangerous because they're not going to have Jamal Murray to start the year, but I'm sure if reigning MVP Nikola Jokic has anything inside his chest, knowing that they got swept out of the postseason in the second round to the Phoenix Suns and had to sit with that all offseason and knowing that it is a long grind, 82 games, etc. But I could see this team winning 50. And if Jokic is going to have anything to say or do with that, I'm sure he's going to be able to push and plug and plod his way through a regular season to at least 48 wins, let alone 50. So I'm going to pick them as my over number two. And lastly, I know I'm going with kind of like the easy way out, but this is a little bit risky and this is the only reason why I'm picking it. I'm going to choose the Clippers over 44 and a half. We know about load management. We know about the knee of Kawhi Leonard. He's probably going to play in 50 games once he's healthy. Who knows, maybe even less than that. And that's why this number is so low because if he was 100% healthy, you would think this number would be close to 50 or maybe right over that, around it or over it. But because 44 and a half and with the way that their season ended last year, they made it to a conference final for the first time in their franchise's history. Ty Lue, another now full year under his belt. I'm sure he's going to hear a lot of it this offseason. And sure, sure enough, he's probably going to brush it off his shoulder. Kawhi Leonard, all the naysayers and the, those that are against the Clippers heading into the season. But I'm going to choose them as an over because I think even if he put, does play 35-40 games, they're going to end up winning about 45-46. And 44 and a half is the number, so I'm going to pick that. Those are my three overs. My unders, I'm going to pick New Orleans under 40 and a half. And only for this reason. Yes, they bring in Jonas Valashunas from Memphis, who's going to be an upgrade there in their front court to go along with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. But with a rookie coach there and Willie Green who was on the staff of the Phoenix Suns there with Monty Williams. So he makes the leap to be a first-time head coach. But I think that the Pelicans still have some growing pains. Yes, they've been together a couple of years. Yes, they should be on the come up. You'll probably see them a lot on national TV this year, but I think they're going to fall short of 40 and a half. I wouldn't be surprised if they're like 39 and 43 or they fall deep into an early hole where they try to dig out of it and they play well, but end up falling short. Watch them get off to a phenomenal start and end up winning 48 games. That'll look bad on my part, but I think they're going to fall short here. So they're my first under. I hate to kick this team while they're down, but when you look at their roster of DeJounte Murray, Thaddeus Young, who else on the Spurs can you actually look at and say, oh yeah, they have this guy, that guy. They're pretty much a roster of unknowns. And yes, they have Doug McDermott, and Derek White, who showed flashes last year, and even Lonnie Walker the fourth. But the Spur team at 29.5, this is definitely going to be Greg Popovich's biggest and most toughest challenge 
since he's been in the NBA. And mind you, his first year in the NBA was 97 when he got Tim Duncan. And we all know the success that they had, especially getting that big man number one in the draft that year. So I'm going to pick them as an under 29 and a half. And then here it is. I'm rolling the dice. I'm going to pick Golden State as an under here at 48 and a half. The uncertainty of, and the psychological aspect of Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry's going to have to do it all by himself pretty much. Who knows what Andrew Wiggins, yes, he got vaccinated, but he's such an up and down, in and out type of player. James Wiseman, I believe he's going to be on the shelf here to start off the year. I should double check that, but... This Warrior team, to me, is going to be hit or miss. And I think they're going to be maybe more missed than hit, but to the point where they probably will make the playoffs. But like I said, I don't know if they're going to fall in that 4, 5, 6 range. I can see them being 6, 7, 8. And if you're 6, 7, 8 in the Western Conference, you're going to be below 48 and a half, and that's why I have them. So to recap, Chicago over 41 and a half, Denver 47 and a half, and the LA Clippers 47, 44 and a half, excuse me, is an over. And my unders are... New Orleans, 40 and a half. San Antonio, 29 and a half. And Golden State, 48 and a half. My finals prediction, I'm not choosing Nets, Lakers. Uh-uh. I'm going to do something different. I'm picking the LA Clippers in six over the Miami Heat. I say the Heat because of Lowry, because they've tasted success with that group and bringing in Lowry Not to say he's a final piece or the missing link. None none of that stuff. But I do feel that with a full season and them getting swept out of the postseason by Milwaukee, having that bad taste in their mouths, and with their conditioning and the preaching of the defensive side of the ball with Eric Spolstra and the whole heat culture, I'm just going to pick them. I can't pick Brooklyn. I can't pick Philly. I can't pick Milwaukee. It's not going to be Boston. It's not going to be Atlanta. It's going to be Miami. So there you go. And one last thing. The 75th anniversary commercial I do like. I love the Apache song. It brings me back to the early days of hip-hop. The incredible bongo band. Love it. But it falls short of the NFL commercial. And you know, I'm not all about the Shield people. But the NFL 100th anniversary commercial, which was stupendous. All the Hall of Famers and the luminaries, contemporaries of today's NFL with the greats of the past, which they did here in this commercial, driving down the road in the ice cream truck, Michael B. Jordan. I get it, but it was very good, and I love the song, but it still fell a little bit short for me, for my liking. Quickly with the NHL, your first week is already in. Seattle wins its first game against Nashville. The Islanders off to a very slow start. They're 0-2. They got blown out in both games, losing 6-3 to Carolina and 5-1 to Florida. And they have 11 more games to go on the road before they come back home. So there's that if you want to talk about. But early on, it's way too early to get into some of these things. I know you had some injuries here, whether you're Nikita Kucherov, who looks like he's going to be out for quite some time. Max Domi, another guy who's going to be out, I believe, two to four weeks. So you already have some early injuries that you have to deal with. Penguins, who beat Tampa that opening game without Sidney Crosby, without Evgeny Malkin. So a good job by them. But the Penguins... And the Lightning, when we look at those two teams, Penguins, who right now, currently five points, tied with the Rangers there. It can't get crazy with these schedules and these standings so far. But I figured I'd just throw that in the mix. And then uh, Tampa has uh, righted the ship after losing their first game, winning their next two. 
And that's what we'll do so far early on. Edmonton 2-0 to start off their year out west in the Pacific. And like I mentioned, Seattle already has their first win. So that's all there is to it on that front. But the NHL now with a suspension going to one of their players and Evander Kane and talk about a guy who's going to need a makeover in the worst way. Having just an awful offseason where his estranged wife accused him of gambling on NHL games including his own team. Then having to deal with a domestic assault which is being investigated with his estranged wife. And then on top of that he suspended 21 games for violating the established of what is it the established violation of COVID protocols where he had an an alleged fake vaccination card that he submitted to the league and to the team he plays for the San Jose Sharks and with that being under investigation the NHL said now the hell with that we're going to put you on the shelf for a quarter of the year and they're going to do that 21 games and on the heels of everything that I mentioned prior to now he's eligible to come back November 30th against New Jersey but with Everything that has happened with this guy, you got to wonder whether or not this 21-game suspension is just a precursor to maybe more games for maybe half a season, a whole season, who knows. Think about this. Domestic assault, gambling accusations, and now a fake vaccination card. Evander Kane, you could have been my zero of the week right off the bat, but... He's got to get it together. Hopefully he does. I don't want to just pound on the guy or pile on him. Obviously, he's going through a lot of things in his life, on the ice, off the ice, etc. So, let's just leave it at that. But I just thought to bring that up for the Shark fan out there that uh, right now has to be scratching his head for one of the players that he roots for. And then lastly, college basketball. I'm going to go through this real quick. Gonzaga is ranked number one on all the preseason polls. We know about the offseason by their coach, Mark Few. They lose the national title game, actually get blown out after that miraculous win and classic game against UCLA, who is ranked number two in the nation, by the way. But with the way the Final Four shook down, especially that championship game, the offseason by Mark Few, where he got pulled over for a DUI in a resort somewhere, I believe it was in Utah, Montana. And now, with all the expectations, now they need to take that next step to win a title this year. So you know there's going to be a ton of pressure on that Gonzaga team. Followed by UCLA, number two. Then Kansas, Villanova, and Texas round out the top five. Then you have Michigan, Purdue, Baylor, who are the champs, by the way. Duke and Kentucky round out the top 10. As we know, Duke, this is the final year for Coach K. So there's going to be just an outpouring of love and support for a final round for the all-time great coach of the Duke Blue Devils. And then we know Kentucky needs to rebound after just a underwhelming season last year. In college basketball, we know it was topsy-turvy with everything that happened with COVID and aborted schedules, things of that nature. But before you know it, you're going to have Midnight Madness and you're going to have college basketball part of our consciousness. So I just thought to throw that out there as that season will be coming in the next few weeks. So let's get to it, people. My Hero and Zero of the Week to sign us off here. My Hero of the Week is going to go to Dick Vitale, the longtime college basketball commentator for ESPN as he's battling lymphoma. 82 years of age, he's going to undergo a six-month treatment of steroids and chemotherapy. He also announced on his Twitter page that he had multiple surgeries over the summer to remove melanoma, which was unrelated to his lymphoma. We know how much of an ambassador he is to the sport of college basketball, which, let's face it, is nothing like it once was. It's all about those three and a half weeks in March. But not having his voice, his vigor, 
his passion for the sport behind a microphone. I believe he's going to even work in between, which God bless him. If that's what's going to propel him to get through this, let it be the case. But he is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to the Tennessee Volunteer fans for throwing objects onto the field directed at former coach Lane Kiffin as coach at Old Miss. Now, at the end of the game and with the way it unfolded, 54 seconds left where the Tennessee fans, for whatever it was, started throwing bottles, golf balls, chairs. I'm exaggerating here, but a lot of that goes back to 2009 when he left Tennessee for USC when he was the coach of the Trojans at that time so even though they have very long memories but for them to go ahead and do that to where they were fined $250,000 please can we have a little bit more decorum a little bit more of I don't want to say professionalism because you're a fan but yeah you want to yell you suck you want to yell go home you want to yell all right maybe not cursing is good but however you want to unleash your venom on the coach of the now Ole Miss, former volunteer, have at it. But to do what you did and just have a black mark to your school, to your fans, etc., all of you who were in that stadium that night doing that, you are my zeros of the week. All right, now we'll do it. I know there's a lot to catch up on, people, especially with an NBA season here, but that'll do it for episode 220. And as you heard at the very top, you know I'm a one-man operation, so please, if you haven't done so, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Throw me a few stars, throw me a review. That will just increase the visibility and do wonders to get this name, this podcast, everything out there to those who aren't familiar with it. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, criticism, praise to any of my social media accounts, you could do so at Instagram, JReels or the JReels Podcast. On Twitter, JReels1, just the number. Facebook, the JReels Podcast. And also, the old-fashioned way, by email to jreelspodcast at gmail.com. Please hit me up. I'll be sure to follow up with you guys and gals. And finally, if you want to contribute to the podcast, you could do so on my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash the jreelspodcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N. Whatever you want to put forth toward the website, the upkeep, equipment, production of this podcast, again, It's yours truly. I don't have assistance. I don't have production assistance. I don't have people under me that do all the grind and dirty work. This is all me, people. But I do it because this is what I love to talk about. If you haven't been able to decipher all that, then I don't know what to tell you, people. But I'm glad you're listening. I do not take your participation for granted because I love to discuss everything that goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>